1: I need your attention. (laughs) Ah, Be quiet and leave. What is it, Hieronymus? Archdeacon, there's trouble at the Episcopal election. Ah, What sort of trouble? I thought we had everything under control. There's rioting and chaos at the Basilica of Santa Maria... Ursenus and his followers have gained control, and events are moving quickly to their favor. We have a problem, then, do we not, Hieronymus? What should we do? I am your humble secretary. I am a man of letters, not of politics. I know, I know, I have plans for your academic skills, but first I must obtain the chair of St. Peter— The people and clergy must understand fully that I, Damasus, am to be the bishop of Rome. You must understand that after the, uh, situation with Liberius, that the clergy and the laity of Rome will be very careful on who they choose to be the next bishop. Of course I understand that. Liberius betrayed the see of St. Peter, and only our Lord will surely judge his sins. Our friend and patron, Felix, should have been the rightful bishop of Rome, but that fool Liberius found his way back into the sea, he all but abdicated, and what was rightfully Felix's. We must plan this carefully, the mob loves Ursinus. If we are not careful, we could lose the support of the Patricians as well as the plebs. Summon Rusticus and Manius. we will need their muscle and ability to persuade in order to set the situation to rights. Lord, aren't their so-called skills of persuasion somewhat heavy-handed for the situation we find ourselves in? If I am to be bishop of the greatest city, I must use all of the tools I have in my possession to persuade the mob that I am fit to be their shepherd. I must show them that the Holy Spirit speaks through me and me alone. The Holy Spirit? That is a bold assertion. Hasn't our dear brother in Alexandria proven the most sacred position of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead? Don't we worship and glorify him in the same way we do the Father and the Son? The political situation is tenuous enough that we probably shouldn't also bring in a highly controversial theological one as well. Well, that is neither here nor there. It doesn't matter much to me. The theologians will determine that issue. We must figure out how to persuade the mob to make me the leader of the Christians of the West and not that fool Ursinus. Our options are limited. Ursinus is extremely popular, especially amongst the plebs and the deacons. I just don't know what we can do to sway opinion against him. First, I need legitimacy. When events progress, I need to be seen as the legitimate pope. For that, I need a synod of presbyters who will elect me to be pope. After that, we need to make sure Ursinus is seen to be illegitimate. That may be a bit more difficult, but I would think our friends Rusticus and Manius can help us. Aren't Rusticus and Manius's methods vulgar at best? "'Oh, poor Hieronymus. Are you sure you are ready for what's to come? Perhaps you are not cut out for the politics required for the real world. I know a number of Abbas in Palestine or Egypt who would be more than happy to welcome you into their skeets. Lord, as much as I would love to rejoin that lifestyle, I must follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God guides me towards your case.' Ursinus will not be an easily defeated foe. We must firstly organize our friends in the Synod to get me elected. We must have that. Secondly, even if Ursinus can organize his friends to elect him, we must delegitimize his election. Even if we can't make his election illegitimate, we must make it very uncomfortable for his supporters to continue to back him. That's an excellent plan, Lord. But how do we make that happen? I believe that is where Rusticus and Manius can come in. I am told that the supporters of Orsinus will acclaim him pope in just a few days' time. His supporters will then meet at the Julian Basilica. I think that's an excellent time to show the plebeian rabble who the true leaders of this city are. First, we will get our supporters to name me Bishop of Rome. I think it will be fitting to have our synod in the Church of St. Lawrence. Then it will be time to act against that fool Ursinus and his ragged mob of supporters. Will the method your supporters apply be harsh, my lord? I am Damasus, and I am to be Bishop of Rome. The Holy Spirit is guiding me in my decisions. If Ursinus and his followers will not bow to me and kiss my ring, and they are acting against the will of the Father. If that is their choice, then they will pay the price. Lord of mercy. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Episode 42, The Arian Century, Part 4, I am Damasus.
0: Welcome
1: back to A2Z History Presents the History of the Papacy. I'm Steve, your host for this podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. I thought I would use this little historical fiction vignette, if you will, as a way to make Damasus more real. In all the possibly hundreds of hours or more of reading and researching I've done for this podcast, Damasus is important historically. We are entering another phase of the story of the history of the papacy. Damasus's papacy is a good time to stop and reflect on where we've come and where we are going with this project. This is a history of the Roman papacy as an office and a historical, theological, and political phenomenon. What I don't want this thing to turn into is a very long-running list of biographies of Roman popes, ending with Francis or one of his successors. Frankly, I don't think that's the most interesting part of the story of the papacy as an institution. Sure, there are incredibly fascinating individuals, and we're going to talk about them. But we are also going to continue to talk about the bigger themes of Christianity and Christian history because the story of the popes is woven completely into that story. The papacy of Damasus I is one of the places we simply have to stop. This is one of the eras of papal and Christian history where we see another piece of the puzzle get put into place for the monarchical papacy we will see in later times and even in the Roman papacy of today. Several of the arguments that are put forward by Roman Catholics today and are objected to by other groups were first put forward during the papal reign of Damasus. Beyond the issues of papal primacy that arose during Damasus's reign, we will definitely get into those, we also have the actual events of his time as pope, and believe me, those were good too. Let's get some background on the man to situate ourselves in his context. Damasus is most oftentimes referred to as a Spaniard, especially in the more ancient sources. And in the classical sense, he was a Spaniard because he and his family came from the western part of the Roman area of Hispania, specifically the province of Lusitania. In today's terms, he was born in Idana Anova, Portugal. I mention this because while Damasus might not be technically Portuguese, besides him, there is only one other Portuguese pope, John XXI, who would reign 1200s. That sort of surprised me. Well, this brief history of Portugal and the papacy is a shout-out to my oftentimes collaborator, Antonio Rodriguez. So let's get some more Portuguese popes already. Damasus and his family were of some degree of an aristocratic background. Now, I say Damasus was born in Portugal in the year 305, incidentally, but it is also possible he was born in Rome to parents who were from Hispania. You may be asking yourself, why is Steve getting all hung up on all this trivia? Well, I think it's important to try and understand Damasus' background and where he was coming from is going to help us understand the man and where he was going to take the Roman papacy and really the Western Latin church. You could say that Damasus was of the first generation of post-persecution of Diocletian Christian leaders. Remember, the persecutions of Diocletian weren't as extreme in the West in the first place, and Damasus would have only been a child by the time the Edict of Milan came around. Damasus' dad was an important man at the Church of St. Lawrence in Rome, and Damasus followed in his father's footsteps. So basically, Damasus was born into a Christianity that was on the upswing. There was plenty of opportunities for an aspiring churchman with good connections. Damasus was a deacon of an important basilica and definitely had powerful connections. One of those connections was the anti-pope Felix. Remember Felix? He was installed as Pope when Liberius was sent into exile. When Liberius came back, Felix either stepped aside or was forced aside. The situation between Felix and Liberius must have been more complicated than what is put forward in the standard narrative. How is it possible otherwise that a follower of Felix, namely Damasus, could be in such a strong position to become pope in 366 upon the death of Liberius. The situation was that Liberius was considered more of a man of the people, so to speak, and Felix had a strong base among the faction of the wealthy in Rome. Here's how things broke down after Liberius's death in September of 336. Liberius's archdeacon, Ursicinus, also referred to as Ursinus, and for sake of my sanity in pronouncing the name, I'm just going to go with Ursinus. Well, this Ursinus squared off against Damasus, powerful deacon and follower of Felix, in the election for Pope. A papal election in 366 looked incredibly different than the last papal election in 2013, drastically different as a matter of fact. The election of a bishop at that time was a fairly democratic affair, all things considered, certainly more democratic than anything the empire was serving up for the most part. If you remember all the way back to the papal election specials in the earliest days of this podcast, then you will recall the process and procedures for a papal conclave today. If you don't remember any of that, it doesn't really matter, because the whole idea of a papal conclave is many hundreds, nearly a thousand years in the future. That is really what keeps me amazed about the history of the popes in Christianity. Just the scale of time involved. But anyways, you can't call the election of a pope in the 4th century a conclave. The papal elections of the early days was not a secretive affair designated to only happen at the Sistine Chapel, where only a certain select group gets to have a say. The election of a bishop was a local affair, and everyone in the locality could weigh in on the decision. You've probably heard about the election of Ambrose of Milan. He was elected by acclamation, for the lack of a better word, by the mob of Milan. The people decided they wanted Ambrose to be elected, and that was that. The local community was electing their local leader to lead their church. In earlier times or in smaller communities, the election of the local elders probably had some politics involved, but was a fairly egalitarian process. Things were changing in Rome and around the empire, though. Christianity was becoming the premier religious and cultural institution, and with that came power and riches. When those two ingredients get thrown into the mix, then the political situation is necessarily going to get more complicated. Rome was a major bishopric that was being lavished with wealth, prestige, and power. A new type of leader was going to be needed, and a new type of person was going to be attracted to the role of bishop in this paradigm. The aristocrats of Rome were slowly joining the new Christian movement. Christianity had found popularity among aristocratic women, but their husbands tended to remain more conservative and pagan in their religious outlook. Damasus worked to make Christianity more palatable to those old-school pagan aristocratic men. He really wasn't converting them for the peace, love, and understanding part of Christianity. These Roman patriarchs must have seen the writing on the wall anyway. Their wives were Christian— Many of the up-and comers in the political world were Christian, and the government was becoming more and more Christian. Damasus reconfigured old Roman practices and writings into a Christian context. This is one big takeaway from Damasus' time at Pope. The times were changing. the days of a former slave or a pauper becoming Pope were winding down. Sure in the seventeen hundred years or so of papal history left to go, there would be some men of humble beginnings who would sit upon Peter's chair. But the guy with that type of biography becoming Pope would become the exception and not the rule.
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In
1: 366, there was no specific College of Cardinals to either elect popes or or have popes selected from. You could say there was a proto-college of cardinals developing. In the last episode, we discussed the foundations of the college of cardinals in some detail. Just to summarize, the early popes of Rome, as well as other bishops and patriarchs, as well had their own advisors and helpers. These were the deacons whose origins go all the way back to the New Testament. Take Athanasius of Alexandria, for example. He was a deacon and was the Patriarch of Alexandria's chief advisor during the First Council of Nicaea. Think about it. Arius wasn't allowed to speak at the council as a priest, but Athanasius practically ran the show. Deacons were very powerful indeed. We discussed canons from the Council of Nicaea. There was a canon that deacons were not to take communion before priests because deacons were regularly overstepping their bounds liturgically. I feel we've covered all this ground before, but it bears repeating. At this time, the roles of bishop and presbyter, priest if you prefer, were still in the process of bifurcating. Initially, there really wasn't a difference between a priest or a bishop. They were both elders of the community who had apostolic succession and led the local community. If there's only one elder in a community who could lead and perform the required sacramental rites, who cares what you call him? As Christianity grew, though, there weren't quite enough elders to go around. Deacons performed the more day-to-day administrative duties, such as feeding the poor, maintaining the church property, preparing catechumens for reception into the church, etc., the deacons could not perform the most important liturgical roles, specifically actually doing what was needed to be done for the central act of the religion, communion. That was reserved for the priesthood. Long story short, priests had their role in the altar, but the deacons were running the show in most other respects. Damasus and Ursinus were the deacons of powerful men, Felix and Liberius respectively. They were the natural choices to step up into the role of Bishop of Rome. The election of Bishop of Rome after the death of Liberius was hotly contested. You might even say dirty. This is one of the papal incidents that critics of the papacy or Roman church bring up to try and discredit the institutions of the papacy and Latin church. If you want to look at events and institutions of later times through the lens of this election, you might have some arguments against some later innovations of the Western Church. That sort of apologetic panegyric isn't our job here. We have to pretend we don't know how the story is going to unfold and take it for what it is in its own context. Now before we dig into the specifics of the election of 366, it's time to take our grain of salt dose Many of the big writers of the time who wrote about the events were completely in the bag for Damasus. Rufinus, Sazamon, and especially Jerome. I say especially Jerome because Jerome was a close confidant as well as secretary for Damasus and completed some important projects for him at times during his papacy. I set the brief dramatization in the beginning of the episode in the time right before the events that were going to happen during the election of Pope in 366. The person who I referred to as Hieronymus was Jerome. I took that license since Jerome is the Latinization of his original Greek name Hieronymus. I also took some license with the timing, as Jerome wasn't first recorded to have worked for Damasus until several years later. The point being, none of these writers were going to put one drop of ink to parchment that was going to go against Damasus. That's where we get to read between the lines and make some conjectures as to what Ursinus and his camp's perspective was on the issues. A record of Ursinus's take on the situation does come down to us, though. How this all got started really happened before Liberius was even cold. Ursinus and Damasus rushed to get themselves elected as Pope. Ursinus may have gotten elected just a bit earlier than Damasus, according to Ursinus' supporters, but this was all within less than a week of Liberius's passing on. Damasus' supporters naturally say he was elected first, but more importantly, Ursinus was definitely able to get himself ordained as Bishop of Rome first. Since being elected wasn't enough, he still needed to get ordained. Damasus was in turn ordained by his supporting bishops very soon after. The two camps held headquarters at different important churches. Roman Catholic sources kind of skim over the whole election thing. They simply call it a highly irregular or even a scandalous election, but they don't get into too much detail on the matter. Two other sources say something quite different though. One, you can take your grain of salt dose again. That's the libellus praecum, which was written by two of Ursinus's supporters. But the other one is a history written by a pagan author who in large part backs up what is said by Ursinus's supporters, namely Ammianus Marcellinus. So here's the rest of the story, if you will. Damasus conspired with some ruffian supporters to basically violently crash the headquarters of Ursinus. These Roman toughs didn't just rough up Ursinus' supporters a little bit to scare them off. No, not in the least bit. They killed 137 followers of Ursinus when they stormed his basilica. Let me repeat that little detail. The supporters of Damasus raided his rival's camp and killed 137 people, Christians. Damasus then bribed various secular Roman officials and took over the Lateran Basilica, then, as it is now, the cathedral seat of the bishopric of Rome. Marcellinus has some good quotes about this incident. Marcellinus essentially says he gets why people would go to such ends to become Pope of Rome. The position, even at this early time, had become fabulously wealthy. Almost to the level of emperors, that is what the office of the Pope of Rome had become. Ambitious men were going to fight to become Pope of Rome, and that type of character wasn't going to be the humble ascetic type. Marcellinus even says that maybe Damasus and Ursina should try to act more akin to the simple country bishop, you know, in a Christian way. Not as some usurping Roman general. The text of Marcellinus is easy to get a hold of, so if you have a chance, I would definitely suggest reading that passage. Don't get the idea Orsinus was a babe in the woods here. He was as ambitious, conspiratorial, and conniving as Damasus, but he was slightly outplayed and lost. Damasus persuaded the secular powers that be to banish Orsinus from Rome. Ursinus would go around the western end of the empire stirring up trouble for Damasus wherever and whenever he could. And Damasus appears to have persecuted Ursinus and his group whenever and wherever he could. Sources put Ursinus in Milan, where he fought against Ambrose of Milan. They accused Ursinus of allying himself with the local Aryans. I think personally you could take it or leave it that Ursinus was an Arian. Or somehow got himself tied to the Arian party in Milan. Maybe Ursinus and the Arians found some common political ground to fight the Orthodox, and they may have formed some sort of alliance. It is also possible that Ursinus was just getting tarred with the old Arian brush, piling on a few more demerits on the man by Damasus's apologists. Not to leave Ursinus' story hanging, he will always be in the background. And even caused some problems for Damasus's successors. We've taken a good chunk of an entire episode to just discuss the first week or so of Damasus's papacy. But there is much more to the story. Damasus touched many issues that are still of importance today. Just to set some context, in the larger world, the Battle of Adrianople would take place during Damasus's reign, as well as the Second Ecumenical Council, that of the Council of Constantinople. The Battle of Adrianople would be one of the first steps down the road to the end of the line for the Western Roman Empire, and it would also create the opening for Theodosius the Great to solidify his power. We will see Theodosius was a game-changer for Orthodox Christianity, and his story ties in closely with the Second Ecumenical Council. During Damasus's reign, Theodosius would issue the Edict of Thessalonica, or Edictum de Fide Catholica, which made the Nicene Trinitarian version of Christianity the official position of the empire. The edict even gave a shout-out to Damasus as one of the major leaders of the Nicene movement. As I said, we're going to take a stop and look closer at the Council of Constantinople and the larger context of the situation of Christianity and the Empire in the next episode. We can talk about Damasus' and the Western in general's role at the Council and the relationship between the West and the East. For the most part, the West had little to do with the Council directly. Pope Damasus didn't go, neither did any western bishops at all, or even any papal legates. The relationship between the western and eastern church was rocky at best. Damasus began to call Rome the Apostolic See, saying that Rome had special authority in the church, what that authority was exactly, and precisely was an evolving thing. Even in Damasus' day and earlier, Rome believed it had a special place in the church in relation to the other bishops, not only in the West, but also among the bishops of all the whole world. Damasus referred to bishops in the East and even fellow patriarchs as his sons, not as was customary as brother. As you may expect, the bishops in the East did not agree with this proposal. Put yourself in the eastern bishop's position. Many of these bishops led large Christian communities that were just as apostolic as Rome, and now Rome is calling them son, not brother, like Rome is somehow the spiritual father to them? Let's watch as that rift between east and west opens up even more. What Damasus was saying with his apostolic see verbiage is that the power of the bishop of Rome came straight up from the apostles in the Bible, in other words, from Jesus slash God, you know, Matthew 16, 18 and all that. You can throw out all that idea about the bishops of larger city communities becoming more powerful than the bishops of smaller communities inside of their administrative district, according to Damasus and his followers. Rome was not seat to the most powerful bishop in the West and even the world because of a tradition of Rome being the capital of the Roman world. Not at all. This authority came right from God and the scriptures, not tradition or man. The popes of Rome and the bishops of the West are not going to like one bit that the bishop of Constantinople is going to be raised to the role of patriarch right underneath and really almost at the side of the Bishop of Rome at the Council of Constantinople in 381. All of this speaks to a major administrative difference between west and east. In the east, bishops were generally more independent from each other, especially the major patriarchates. The bishops of Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria were secure inside of their geographic areas of administration things were different in the West. There weren't individual patriarchates that went back to the apostles like the East, just Rome. The Bishop of Rome was patriarch of the entire West, and the bishops of the West, even the highest-ranking bishops, had a history of deferring to Rome for decisions. Even when opportunities arose for bishops to grab power at the expense of the Pope, they didn't take it. Cyprian of Carthage had one such opportunity, and instead of usurping power, deplored the pope to act. More contemporary to Damasus, Ambrose of Milan, a very powerful bishop as we will see, famously defended papal power. Damasus never really successfully wielded much political power on the international stage, though. He tried to get Arian Auxentius of Milan booted out of his bishopric of Milan with no success. Ambrose of Milan could have easily set himself up as a separate power base, but he didn't. Damasus was more successful accumulating secular political power in Rome. The bishop of Rome under Damasus became much more senatorial, even imperial, in its dress and opulence. That is certainly going to be a theme as we move forward. In keeping with that change in level of wealth and political power, Damasus set the Pope up to be a great supporter of the arts and learning. With all of the other stories and narrative lines with Damasus, this is going to seem like an unimportant postscript, but it's not in the least bit. Probably the most important thing Damasus did in this realm of commissioning important cultural works was having the Bible translated into Latin by Jerome. The Bible had been translated into Latin in bits and pieces before Jerome, but the new version translated by Jerome was a huge undertaking. Jerome's translation, known as the Vulgate, is to this day, with a few recent revisions, the Bible used by Roman Catholics and the basis for the translations of the various Western European vernacular languages. At this time, though, in the 4th century, there was no official canon of scripture. The canon wouldn't be officially set by the church until the middle of the 1500s. Damascus also really built up the veneration of the martyrs, former popes, and important Christian sites around Rome. He commissioned the rebuilding of many important churches and sites, as well as adding inscriptions that would be placed to record the lives of important Christians. He is known as the patron saint of archaeologists for this work. Damasus's reign also marked the point where many of the old pagan institutions were finally completely suppressed. We can definitely rank the papacy of Damasus as one of the major and most important papacies of all time. Thank you very much for joining us on this tour of the history of the Roman Popes and Christian Church. The History of the Papacy podcast is a proud member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network. Definitely take time to listen to the latest history collage from the HistoryPodcasters.com. It was fun participating in the latest topic of the history of alcohol. If you would like to get in contact to share your thoughts, ask questions, or anything else, you can email me at steve at a If you go to the website, you can find links to all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. There is a button there to donate as well. If you donate any dollar amount, you'll receive a special bonus track as a thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Roman Popes and Christian Church.